Section 9 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 9. Philip of France wins the French domains of the English kings, A.D. 1202 to 1204, by Kate Norgate, Part 2. The interests of the French king were in fact no less concerned in Arthur's imprisonment, and more concerned in his death, than were the interests of John himself. John's one remaining chance of holding Philip and the Bretons in check was to keep them in uncertainty whether Arthur were alive or dead in order to prevent the bretons from adopting any decided policy and hamper the french king in his dealings with them and with the angevin and poitevin rebels by compelling him to base his alliance with them on conditions avowedly liable to be annulled at any moment by arthur's reappearance on the political scene if therefore arthur as is most probable was now really dead whether he had indeed perished a victim of one of those fits of ungovernable fury in which and in which alone the angevin counts sometimes added blunder to crime or whether he had died a natural death from sickness in prison or by a fall in attempting to escape it would be equally politic on john's part to let rumor do its worst rather than suffer any gleam of light to penetrate the mystery which shrouded the captive's fate john's chance however was a desperate one a fortnight after easter 1203 the french king attacked and took saumer moving southward he was joined by some poitevins and bretons with whose help he captured sundry castles in aquitaine thence he went back to the norman border to be welcomed at alenchon by its count and to lay siege to conch john who was then at falaise sent william the marshal to conch to beg that philip would have pity on him and make peace philip refused john hurried back to ruin to find both city and castle in flames whether kindled by accident or by treachery there is nothing to show conch was taken vaudreuil was betrayed the few other castles in the county of evreux which had not already passed either by cession conquest or treason into philip's hands shared the like fate while john flitted restlessly up and down between ruin and various places in the neighborhood but made no direct effort to check the progress of the invader messenger after messenger came to him with the same story the king of france is in your land as an enemy he is taking your castles he is binding your seneschals to their horses tails and dragging them shamefully to prison he is dealing with your goods at his own pleasure john heard them all with an unmoved countenance and dismissed them all with the unvarying reply let him alone some day i shall win back all that he is winning from me now it was by diplomacy that john hoped to parry the attack which he knew he could not repel by force early in the year he had complained to the pope of the long course of insult and aggression pursued toward him by philip and begged innocent to interfere in his behalf thereupon philip in his turn sent messengers and letters to the pope giving his own version of his relations with john and endeavoring to justify his own conduct on may twenty sixth innocent announced to both kings that he was about to dispatch the abbots of casimario troy fontaine and dunn as commissioners to arbitrate upon the matters in dispute between them these envoys seemed to have been delayed on their journey and when they reached france they for some time found it impossible to ascertain whether philip would or would not accept their arbitration 
When at last he met them in council at Mant on August 26th, he told them bluntly that he was not bound to take his orders from the apostolic see as to his rights over a fief and a vassal of his own, and that the matter in dispute between the two kings was no business of the popes. John, meanwhile, had, on August 11th, suddenly quitted his passive attitude and laid siege to Alenchon, but he retired on Philip's approach four days later. An attempt which he made to regain Brazol was equally ineffectual. Philip, on the other hand, was now resolved to bring the war to a crisis. It was probably straight from the council at Mantes that he marched to the siege of Chateau Gaillard. Chateau Gaillard was a fortress of far other importance than any of the castles which both parties had been so lightly winning, losing, and winning again during the last ten years. It was the key of the Seine above ruin, the bulwark raised by Richard Coeur de Leon to protect his favorite city against attack from France. Not till the fortifications which commanded the river at Les Andelys were either destroyed or in his own hands could Philip hope to win the Norman capital and those fortifications were of no common order. Their builder was the greatest, as he was the last, of the great builders of Anjou, and his fair castle on the rock of Andalys was at once the supreme outcome of their architectural genius, and the earliest and most perfect example in Europe of the new development which the crusaders' study of the mighty works of Byzantine or even earlier conquerors, quickened and illuminated as it was by the exigencies of their own struggle with the infidels, had given to the science of military architecture in the East. During the past year, John had added to his brother's castle a chapel with an undercroft, placed at the southeastern corner of the second ward. The fortress, which nature and art had combined to make impregnable, was well stocked with supplies of every kind. Moreover, it was one of the few places in Normandy which Philip had no hope of winning, and John no fear of losing, through treason on the part of its commandant. Roger de Lacy, to whom John had given it in charge, was an English baron who had no stake in Normandy, and whose personal interest was therefore bound up with that of the English king. He was also a man of high character and dauntless courage. Nothing short of a siege of the most determined kind would avail against the saucy castle, and on that siege Philip now concentrated all his forces and all his skill. As the right bank of the Seine at that point was entirely commanded by the castle and its neighbor fortification, the walled town, also built by Richard, known as the New or Lesser Andely, while the river itself was doubly barred by a stockade across its bed, close under the foot of the rock, and by a strong tower on an island in midstream just below the town, he was obliged to encamp in the meadows on the opposite shore. The stockade, however, was soon broken down by the daring of a few young Frenchmen, and the waterway being thus cleared for the transport of materials, he was enabled to construct below the island a pontoon, by means of which he could throw a portion of his troops across the river to form the siege of the new Andely, place the island garrison between two fires, and at once keep open his own communications and cut off those of the besieged with both sides of the river alike. These things seem to have been done toward the end of August. On the 27th and 28th of that month, John was at Montfort, a castle some five and twenty miles from ruin, held by one of his few faithful barons, Hugh of Gournay. On the 30th, if not the 29th, he and all his available forces were back at ruin, ready to attempt on that very night the relief of Les Andelys. The king's plan was a masterpiece of ingenuity, 
and the fact that the elaborate preparations needed for its execution were made so rapidly and so secretly as to escape detection by an enemy so close at hand goes far to show how mistaken are the charges of sloth and incapacity which, even in his own day, men brought against John Softsword. He had arranged that a force of 300 knights, 3,000 mounted men-at-arms, and 4,000 foot, under the command of William the Marshal, with a band of mercenaries under Lou Pescar, should march by night from ruin along the left bank of the Seine, and fall, under cover of darkness, upon the portion of the French army which still lay on that side of the river. Meanwhile, seventy transport vessels, which had been built by Richard to serve either for sea or river traffic, and as many more boats as could be collected, were to be laden with provisions for the distressed garrison of the island fort, and convoyed up the stream by a flotilla of small warships, manned by pirates under a chief named Allen, and carrying, besides their own daring and reckless crews, a force of three thousand Flemings. Two hundred strokes of the oar, John reckoned, would bring these ships to the French pontoon. They must break it if they could. If not, they could at least cooperate with the Marshal and Lou Pescar in cutting off the northern division of the French host from its comrades and supplies on the left bank, and throw into the island fort provisions which would enable it to hold out till John himself should come to its rescue. One error brought the scheme to ruin, an error neither of strategy nor of conduct, but of scientific knowledge. John had miscalculated the time at which, on that night, the Seine would be navigable upstream, and his counselors evidently shared his mistake till it was brought home to them by experience. The land forces achieved their march without hindrance, and at the appointed hour, shortly before daybreak, fell upon the French camp with such a sudden and furious onslaught that the whole of its occupants fled across the pontoon, which broke under their weight. But the fleet, which had been intended to arrive at the same time, was unable to make way against the tide, and before it could reach its destination, the French had rallied on the northern bank, repaired the pontoon, recrossed it in full force, and routed John's troops. The ships, when they at last came up, thus found themselves unsupported in their turn, and though they made a gallant fight, they were beaten back with heavy loss. In the flush of victory, one young Frenchman contrived to set fire to the island fort. It surrendered, and the whole population of the new Andalie fled in a panic to Chateau Gaillard, leaving their town to be occupied by Philip. The saucy castle itself still remained to be won. Knowing, however, that for this, nothing was likely to avail but a blockade, which was now practically formed on two sides by his occupation of the island fort and the lesser Andalie, Philip, on the very next day, set off to make another attempt on Radapont, whence he had been driven away by John a year before. This time, John made no effort to dislodge him. It was not worthwhile. The one thing that mattered now was Chateau Gaillard. Thither, Philip, after receiving the surrender of Radapont, returned toward the end of September, 1203, to complete the blockade. No second attempt to relieve it was possible. It may have been for the purpose of endeavoring to collect fresh troops from the western districts, which were as yet untouched by the war, that John about this time visited his old county of Mortain, and even went as far as Dahl, which his soldiers had taken in the previous year. But his military resources in Normandy were exhausted. The marshal bluntly advised him to give up the struggle. Sire, said William, you have not enough friends. If you provoke your enemies to fight, you will diminish your own force, 
and when a man provokes his enemies, it is but just if they make him rue it. Whoso is afraid, let him flee, answered John. I myself will not flee for a year, and if indeed it came to fleeing, I should not think of saving myself otherwise than you would, wheresoever you might be. I know that well, sire, replied William, but you, who are wise and mighty and of high lineage, and whose work it is to govern us all, have not been careful to avoid irritating people. If you had, it would have been better for us all. Methinks I speak not without reason. The king, as if a sword had struck him to the heart, spoke not a word, but rushed to his chamber. Next morning he was nowhere to be found. He had gone away in a boat, almost alone, and it was only at Bonneville that his followers rejoined him. This was apparently at the beginning of October 1203. For two months more he lingered in the duchy, where his position was growing more hopeless day by day. At the end of October, or early in November, he took the decisive step of dismantling Pont de la Arche, Molyneux, and Montfort, three castles which, next to Chateau Gaillard, would be of the greatest value to the French for an advance upon ruin. To ruin itself, he returned once more on November 9th, and stayed there four days. On the 12th, he set out for Bonneville, accompanied by the Queen, and telling his friends that he intended to go to England to seek counsel and aid from his barons and people there, and would soon return. In reality, his departure from the capital was caused by a rumor which had reached him of a conspiracy among the Norman barons to deliver him up to Philip Augustus. At Bonneville, therefore, he lodged not in the town, but in the castle, and only for a few hours. The marshal and one or two others alone were warned of his intention to set forth again before daybreak, and the little party had got a start of seven leagues on the road to Caen before their absence was discovered by the rest of the suite, of whom some went after them and the more part went back. Still John was reluctant to leave Normandy. He went south to Domfront and west to Vere before he again returned to the coast at Barfleur on November 28th and even then he spent five days at Gonneville and one at Cherbourg, before he finally took ship at Barfleur on December 5th to land at Portsmouth next day. It was probably before he left Rouen that he addressed a letter to the commandant of Chateau Gaillard in these terms. We thank you for your good and faithful service, and desire that, as much as in you lies, you will persevere in the fidelity and homage which you owe to us that you may receive a worthy meed of praise from God and from ourself and from all who know your faithfulness. If, however, which God forbid, you should find yourself in such straits that you can hold out no longer, then do whatsoever our trusty and well-beloved Peter of Pro, William of Mortimer, and Hugh of Howells, our clerk, shall bid you in our name. An English chronicler says that John, being unwilling or unable to succor the besieged, through fear of the treason of his men, went to England, leaving all the Normans in a great perturbation of fear. It is hard to see what they feared unless it were John's possible vengeance, at some future time, for their universal readiness to welcome his rival. Not one town manned its walls, not one baron mustered his tenants and garrisoned his castles to withstand the invader. Some, as soon as John was out of the country, openly made a truce with Philip for a year, on the understanding that if not succored by John within that time, they would receive the French king as their lord. The rest stood passively looking on at the one real struggle of the war, the struggle for Chateau Gaillard. At length, on March 6, 1204, the saucy castle fell. 
Its fall opened the way for a French advance upon ruin, but before taking this further step, Philip deemed it politic to let the Pope's envoy, the abbot of Casamario, complete his mission by going to speak with John. The abbot was received at a great council in London at the end of March. The result was his return to France early in April, in company with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the bishops of Norwich and Ely, and the earls of Pembroke and Leicester, all charged with a commission to sound the French king and treat with him about terms of peace. On the French king's side, the negotiation was a mere form. To whatever conditions the envoys proposed, he always found some objection, and his own demands were such as John's representatives dared not attempt to lay before their sovereign. Arthur's restoration, or, if he were dead, the surrender of his sister Eleanor, and the cession to Philip, as her suzerain and guardian, of the whole continental dominions of the Angevin house. Finally, Philip dropped the mask altogether and made a direct offer, not to John, but to John's Norman subjects, including the two lay ambassadors. All those, he said, who within a year and a day would come to him and do him homage for their lands should receive confirmation of their tenure from him. Hereupon the two English earls, after consulting together, gave him 500 marks each, on the express understanding that he was to leave them unmolested in the enjoyment of their Norman lands for a twelve-month and a day, and that at the expiration of that time they would come and do homage for those lands to him, if John had not, meanwhile, regained possession of the duchy. Neither William the Marshal nor his colleague had any thought of betraying or deserting John, as the Marshal's biographer says, they did not wish to be false, and when they reached England they seemed to have frankly told John what they had done, and to have received no blame for it. The return of the English embassy was followed by a letter from the Commandant of Rouen, John's trusty and well-beloved Peter of Prue, informing the English king that all the castles and towns from Bayeux to Annette had promised Philip that they would surrender to him as soon as he was master of Rouen, an event which, Peter plainly hinted, was not likely to be long delayed. This information about the western towns was probably incorrect, for it was on western Normandy that Philip made his next attack. John, meanwhile, had in January imposed a scutage of two marks and a half per shield throughout England, and, in addition, a tax of a seventh of movables, which, though it fell upon all classes alike, the clergy included, he is said to have demanded expressly on the ground of the baron's desertion of him in Normandy. The hire of a mercenary force was, of course, the object to which the proceeds of both these taxes were destined. But they took time to collect, and John soon fell back upon a readier, though less trustworthy, resource, and summoned the feudal host of England to meet him at Portsmouth, seemingly in the first week of May. It gathered, however, so slowly that he was obliged to give up the expedition. Philip was about this time besieging Falaise. He won it, and went on in triumph to receive the surrender of Damfront, Saez, Lisieux, Caen, Bayeux, Coutances, Barfleur, and Cherbourg. He was then joined by John's late ally, the Count of Boulogne, as well as by Guy of Thouar, the widower of Constance of Brittany. And these two, their forces swelled by a troop of mercenaries who had transferred their services from John to Philip, after the surrender of Falaise, completed the conquest of southwestern Normandy, while the French king at last set his face toward ruin. He was not called upon to besiege it, nor even to threaten it with a siege. 
On June 1, 1204, Peter de Pro made in his own name and in the names of the commandants of Arc and Vernois a truce with Philip, promising that these two fortresses and ruin should surrender if not succored within thirty days. The three Castellans sent notice of this arrangement to John, who, powerless and penniless as he was, scornfully bade them look for no help from him, but do whatsoever seemed to them best. It seemed to them best not even to wait for the expiration of the truce. Ruin surrendered on June 24th, and in a few days Arc and Vernois followed its example. Thus did Normandy forsake, as Anjou and Maine had already forsaken, the heir of its ancient rulers for the king of the French. End of section 9